The Aside podcast is made free thanks to the support of Drama Victoria. Hello and welcome to The Aside, a podcast for drama teachers and students. I'm Nick Waxman and today we will be speaking with Jolian James, the writer and director of Robot Song, which is touring nationally in 2019 through to the end of July. It is also on the 2019 VCE Drama Playlist. Find out more at arenatheatre.com.au. Writer, director and designer Jolian James is a multidisciplinary artist with nearly 30 years of professional experience in performance, writing, visual arts, photography and directing. With a strong emphasis on creating contemporary original work for young people, Jolian is equally comfortable in both traditional and non-traditional theatrical forms, often combining writing, directing, designing and new technologies. Jolian is currently working with Vision Australia and Monash University to create a theatre work specifically designed to be accessible to individuals with a vision impairment. As the current artistic associate of Arena Theatre Company, Jolian has been central to the development, design and implementation of the company's regional workshop program and large-scale arts residencies. This work lies at the heart of the company and provides a platform for the research and development of all of Arena's current works. As a performer, Jolian has regularly appeared on stage, television and screen, both in Australia and internationally. As a visual artist, he has participated in numerous group and solo exhibitions and was recently a finalist in the prestigious National Photographic Portrait Prize. Jolian is committed to working in the theatre for young people sector and through Arena Theatre Company is driven to create works that both challenge and reflect the complex and ever-changing landscape young people inhabit. Without any further ado, I bring you a conversation with Jolian James. Welcome, Jolian. Hi, how are you going? Thank you for being with us today. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Can you explain the conventions for moving beyond reality of life as lived used in this piece and how they enhance the performance style? Yeah, there are a lot of different conventions I use in Robot Song. Um, one is the direct address to the audience, which is really important to the show. Uh, the lead character talks directly to the audience and um, says, we're all here in this room, in this theatre, doing this show. There's no pretense of a fourth wall. And one of the reasons for that is that it was really important for the audience to feel that they were part of the show and emotionally connected to the journey of the character throughout the show. Um, so that's a major convention. And um, another one is we use a lot of Brechtian devices. Uh, I love Brecht. Um, I love being able to uh, foreshadow what's uh, about to happen through labelling. In the show, she writes a list of things that are going to happen in the show and they're up on a whiteboard in front of everyone for everyone to see. Um, and I think that whilst it's an intellectual kind of device for accessing the show, by the time you hit each of those points on the whiteboard, uh, the reality of what they actually mean is vastly different. So there would be a couple of them. I think um, I'd probably use, there's a, a bit of theatre of cruelty, I think, some of the students might know about, which is, uh, using kind of overwhelming sensory devices. At the beginning of the show, it's really loud and it's really bright. She's wearing this bright light suit. Uh, and that's to give the audience a sense of how overwhelmingly um, sensory it is for this character. So there's just a few. Can you give an example of something that she writes on the board that comes true later? Yeah, absolutely. So when you see... Uh, the, the actual letter I think she writes uh, at, on the list on the board, there's a point in which 
this horrible letter that she's received um, from her schoolmates, this horrible petition stating that she's the most hated person at the school. When you read it on, in the list on the board, it kind of takes its place amongst all the other things and you don't realise how, uh, what huge stakes it has. So when she finally sings a song about it and goes into a massive meltdown, it's this huge obstacle in the show. I think reading it on the board really belies the impact of this moment. And I think um, somewhere you kind of file it away as something you know about and you can deal with, but then the reality hits and she sings this full on song and it's overwhelming. Um, I think that's the device right there. I think um, the gap between your brain and your heart, I think is so large that you have to go on this huge journey with her. How do actors use their expressive skills to create characters and enhance the performance style? We talked about performance styles, and I think performance styles bleeds into expressive styles as well. Um, the lead character uh, has this very direct um, address to the audience, so she's very direct, she's very clear, and so she's able to go into the audience, she sits with them, she asks them to do things, um, so I think that's part inbuilt into the character's expressive style. Also, it's, um, you know, it's kind of a musical. The lead character loves musicals, so she's decided to tell this true story uh, in part through singing. So the value of, of musicals, I think, is that when, when things become very heightened and the stakes become enormous, you go from naturalistic dialogue into more heightened dialogue. Sometimes she speaks slightly poetically, everything is quite rhythmic. And then when it's the most extreme, she's singing. And that extreme can be when she's most affected negatively by the letter in the show, or it's when she's most happy or most secure. And that's her, her real happy place is when she's singing. And so that's a really important expressive style. It's part of the script and it's really inbuilt into the characters as well. Um, for the dad as well, the dad goes through a whole lot of different performance modes. Um, sometimes he's there just to facilitate um, Juniper's show. He runs around and provides the props and he, he's trying to be really invisible and trying to make sure that the show runs really smoothly. And then at times he's invited to perform. There's a, a, a pretty full on song, the Pooh song happens, which is this true story that happened to me. And Juniper invites her dad on to um, sing this song. And so he goes into a really strong, a big performance mode. So um, yes, I think their expressive styles are kind of contained within those mediums. Do the actors use their voice, gesture, facial expression or movement to portray specific larger than life characters? They're not larger than life, um, but they do move through these styles. So, for example, the dad plays multiple characters. At one point, he plays a, uh, a teacher, Miss Cummings, and he walks onto the stage. He's got this scarf and this uh, little bangle around his arm, and we, he does a turn, and then suddenly he's a completely different character. He's got a different energy and a different weight. Um, and so, yes, in a moment, you see him transforming from... Um, from himself, playing himself and the dad in the show into a completely different character. Miss Cummings is more slightly heightened as well. He's playing um, this fantastic art teacher and it's very different to him. Is Juniper expressed through unique use of the expressive skills? Uh, Juniper, yes, she does. Juniper um, is on the autism spectrum. 
And so whilst it was really important not to um, play a character that was uh, um, a generic person with ASD, because that does, just doesn't exist, but when um, part of her character means that when she gets anxious or stressed, she can um, do gestures and movements that kind of articulate her kind of inner uh, anxiety and her hands. It's called stimming. And so you often see her really kind of playing with her hands um, and um, kind of looking, seeking out sensory kind of options to calm her down. Uh, so she's very physical and those things are inbuilt into her character. So yes, I think that would form part of her um, expressive styles, yes. How is mood manipulated in ways that move beyond realism? Um, that's a good question because, um, the yes, we move beyond realism, I think, uh, in some ways and in some ways we don't because we say that this is a true story, it's happening right now, and we're all in the theatre experiencing this thing. So in a way, we don't get transported anywhere else. But um, I suppose the moods and the atmosphere are greatly enhanced through the lighting design. Uh, the lighting design is by an incredible lighting designer, Paul Lim. There's moments, there's a, an, an idea that runs through the whole play about breathing. Uh, she's been told by her doctor that she needs to breathe, which she finds incredibly funny and ironic because the, uh, the idea of not breathing just seems ridiculous. But whenever she breathes, the whole stage lights up. There's a song where they're talking about breathing and singing and then this, the whole stage lights up with her breath. Um, when she goes into this meltdown zone where she's completely shut down after receiving this letter, the stage goes into a blue, very deep blue color like she's underwater. And because that's what it feels like for her when she's in this meltdown, everything kind of loses its clarity. She's drifting around in this hazy world. She can't really see the audience. Uh, and there's this very kind of strong kind of um, audio hum going through this whole period as well. So we know that we're in a different place, even though we're still in the theatre. So there would be two elements, I think. So certainly, yes, the lighting and the audio are, are great elements for shifting atmosphere and mood. How is rhythm manipulated? The rhythm of the piece is really, really specific. It's very, very um, carefully constructed. As I mentioned earlier, sometimes she speaks very naturalistically and, and has a very conversational tone. When she gets heightened, things start locking into different rhythms. There's a whole piece that she speaks um, with an underscoring of this kind of ticking time bomb clock underneath, and it ticks, 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 ticks all the way through. And it's about her anxiety about going to school. This happens every morning. And so in her mind is this very stressful ticking, ticking, ticking underneath her. And so the music is underscored in that. And it goes from uh, like a 4-4 time, which is something very recognisable in pop music. And then it starts going out of kilter into a 6-4 time and a 7-4 time and an 8-4 time. And so the music is um, supporting her in a way that makes the audience feel that things are kind of going off the rails. So she's speaking this monologue, underneath is this ticking, and the music feels like these cogs are suddenly shifting and straining and breaking. So rhythmically, it's incredibly important. Can you talk a little bit about how the production generally moves beyond realism or life as lived? We talk about the show being more like a documentary than it is like a musical. So I suppose um, the moments of song and music move beyond realism. People don't normally 
sing when they speak to each other. Um, but the other elements, there's a, an animated uh, robot that she interacts with on the screen. But in a way, it's not moving beyond realism because it's, the dad is, has built it and is operating it and, and using it to help her get over this incredible obstacle in her life. Um, there's a giant robot that she finds inside her recycling bin. But again, it's the product of her parents. They built it uh, and they placed it there for her. So I would argue that we don't really move beyond realism other than the, the overall fact is that we're in a theatre, we're watching an actor who clearly isn't an 11-year-old girl uh, and she's playing a character. But beyond that, I like to think that the elements are pretty real. Can you talk a little bit about climax, conflict and contrast? Um, so the, the major conflict uh, which leads into the climax of the piece is um, Juniper's very um, stressful and difficult relationship with her schoolmates. Uh, you see a moment where something that she really treasures, she's got these beautiful old 1980s videotapes that she and her dad watch um, from the 80s. He's in love with this show called Battletech. She takes them to school and they're so precious to her. She's built this incredible mask from them and um, they get destroyed by her classmates, presumably. So that's the catalyst for a big outburst at the school. And she, the, she finds the person who did it and she pushes them over and she even breaks their arm. So um, that then leads on to a, um, an interview with the principal where they're talking about these outbursts that she has and which leads into this horrible letter that she receives, which is at the center of the piece, uh, which is a petition stating that you know, she, it would be better that she was dead and that she was completely hated and despised by everyone and everybody in the class has signed it. Now, the letter in the show is a real letter. It was received by a real child and it's completely um, destroyed him over the last couple of years and his family as well. And um, so I thought I'd take that very real element and place it inside the show um, to try and work out a strategy of how you move through something so enormous in someone's life and, and literally transform it into something positive, which is what happens in the show. So I would say that they were the most key areas of conflict and tension, and certainly the climax of the show is hidden inside that. But for me, the greater climax of the show comes at the end, when she's in a way released from the meaning of the letter. She realises that the letter is just... Um, a lie that her schoolmates have written about her. These things aren't true. And she believed that they were true and that she gets to define who she is and uh, she can do that on her own terms. Can you talk to us about how space is manipulated in ways that move beyond reality of life as lived? As I say, you know, the premise is that she's, she's brought all these elements to do a play in this theatre with our audience. So that, that's the premise. We know we're watching a play. But she's got, um, she does go from um, being at home uh, to being in the play, sometimes at the same time. She's brought this giant bin in, which is the real bin from her parents' art studio. And so sometimes we move from the whiteboard, which is clearly the play that we're seeing in the theatre and our audience is reading all these things. And then suddenly we're at home, she's sitting on top of her rubbish bin, who's called Gommy, it's her best friend. And this mat that is sitting on the, the stage, which is this kind of green grass rug looking mat, 
suddenly we know is from her own bedroom. And so whenever she's on that, she feels comfortable and like she's back home. And again, the lighting supports that. The slides change on the whiteboard to tell us where we are. And sometimes, as I say, you see that she's at home and her dad's talking to her at home and saying that he can bring out her dinner to uh, where she is out in the backyard. And then he immediately talks to the audience. So we know we're in the theatre as well at the same time. And I, I love that about theatre is that we can house these two real realities simultaneously without having to really specifically design where we are at any given time. But she certainly has the performance mode. She's got a microphone which she stands in front of and sings and sings to our audience. She's got this beautiful mat that is her safety place that sometimes is grass outside the back of her house and is sometimes a bedroom and sometimes the theater. She's got her rubbish bin that she climbs up on top of and pulls miraculous things out of. And again, we have our whiteboard, which is clearly in the theater and that serves all sort of sorts of devices like the animated robot and the list of things that are gonna appear in the play. How is symbol applied throughout the piece? Great, symbol is an incredibly uh, important um, device in this show. There's symbols galore everywhere. Um, the major symbol of the show being the notion of being a robot. So Juniper is teased for being like a robot, um, largely because she's different to others and she's on the autism spectrum. And so there's a misunderstanding about people with autism uh, that they lack emotion or they lack empathy or they lack feeling. And the opposite is actually true. They're so sensitive that sometimes the world is just so overwhelming that they need to shut down. So it was really important to take a symbol of the most uh, unfeeling thing I could think of, which was a robot, and then by the end of it, transform it into this beautiful, feeling, living, breathing organism. So I think the journey of that robot and the metaphor of the robot and the symbol of the robot um, was one of the most key elements to the show. There are other great symbols. The rubbish bin, which is her best friend. I thought it was really interesting that um, Juniper in the show kind of symbolises a bit of a rubbish bin. Her classmates think it's okay to fill her up with their rubbish. They write this letter and they, they treat her badly. And a rubbish bin um, just sits in our house. It's something that we put all the stuff we hate inside of and we just let it there, leave it there to fester. And so I thought how beautiful it is for Juniper to turn around and um, make something that we would normally not give a second glance to, uh, this beautiful thing of creativity and joy and, and indeed her best friend. So I thought the rubbish bin was a great symbol and a great metaphor of Juniper and how it transforms from being one thing that we think it is into this beautiful, creative, lovely thing. Um, there's um, the symbol of the rug that I mentioned earlier. The rug, she's very tactile, Juniper, so she's very sensory. She seeks out um, uh, sensory things to make her feel better. So the rug, she feels so safe on. She's had the rug in her bedroom all her life. It's soft and beautiful and green, and when she's on it, she feels safe. Her costume, uh, it's of a beautiful, fine cord. So when you brush, we did a lot of work on the costume, actually, to make sure it was the right thing for the character, um, because she's constantly looking for reassurance in how soft and beautiful it is. Um, there's an element on it which has uh, sequins that she can brush against as well. And <clears throat> in the pockets are lined with beautiful silk, so she keeps her hands in her pockets. So that's a lovely way uh, that costume can 
play with that symbol as well. There's, oh, God, lots and lots of symbols. Her, her stage is completely cluttered with the beautiful creative projects of her dad um, and that she's clearly put together. And some of them have a lot of um, uh, tension inside them. You see this grotesque Frankenstein mask, but it's sitting in this beautiful little pusher. And I imagine that when she was practicing her play, she would put the Frankenstein mask there in the pusher and do the entire show to it. And it's become this beautiful best friend. So again, she's transformed it from something that was grotesque into something that's beautiful. Um, there's beautiful symbolism in the lighting. Uh, as I mentioned, the lighting supports this uh, metaphor of breathing throughout the play. Uh, whenever she breathes, the, the stage changes colour and lights up. Whenever she sings, it, it does the same thing. And as I say, when she goes into this horrible meltdown period where it's very stressful for her, the lights change into this blue colour which um, symbolises being underwater. So yeah, the, the show is laden with symbolism. It's all the way through. Is there something you would like to talk about that we haven't covered? Um, there's one thing I'd love to talk about, and it's, it's, I haven't really worked out what it means yet. The show was written originally for um, kids kind of eight plus. Um, and when the show was selected for the VCE playlist, we suddenly realised we were going to have audiences of 16 and 17 year old school kids studying the play. And so we, we weren't sure really how that would go with them. And um, we just had this overwhelming response to the show with audiences of that age and older as well and parents and all that kind of stuff. But I'm particularly interested that um, these incredible smart kids and the questions they asked and the way they invested in the show was so incredible for a show that was really conceived for a much younger audience. And so we're trying to work out really what that means. And when we make shows, um, how we know that we're going to target the audience that we've made it for, or whether they're going to re reveal beautiful things like being um, available to everyone, really, and meaningful to everyone. Thank you for your time today, Jolly and James. You're welcome. Please find more information about the National Tour of Robot Song by visiting arenatheatre.com.au. That is all from us at The Aside. We have a number of episodes in the bank, over 150 now. We've recently hit over 18,000 listens, and if the emails we're getting tell us anything, it's that this podcast is helping students and teachers all around Victoria. If you would like to contact us about a topic for a future episode, do not hesitate to email us at asidepodcast at outlook.com. Thank you to Drama Victoria for your ongoing support. Thank you to Eltham College for letting us record here. Thank you to Aaron Searle for providing the music. And of course, thanks to you for listening. <laughs>